Good morning. Uh, today we return to our series in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Uh, so if you would open your Bible uh, to Hebrews chapter 12, we will be looking at verses 12 to 17. Uh, since it's been a few weeks, let me remind you that uh, the book of Hebrews is written to suffering Christians. They have faced persecution. If you remember back in chapter 10, uh, uh, there was public mocking, imprisonment. Some had their homes and property confiscated by the government. And now there is a rising tide, a threat of more persecution. They don't know it, but it's going to be worse. Uh, their suffering is real, and it is severe. And as a result, some are beginning to drift from their faith in Christ. This is too hard. The cost is too great. And so our author wants to encourage them who are feeling that way and encourage us to persevere. In spite of the suffering, to live by faith. And what is the essence of faith? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Look to God, look to Christ. Lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all of your hearts. It's easy to say, hard to live out when you don't understand what God is doing. Don't let your circumstances define your understanding of God. Let God interpret your reality. Let his word shape how you think about all of life, including the suffering that we experience this side of eternity. So look with me at verses 12 to 17 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, strengthen the drooping hands and the weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For we know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. As we consider our text, I want us to focus on three things. First, the reality of our suffering. Then our response to that reality. And then finally, thirdly, our responsibility to one another. First, I want us to think about the reality in suffering. And we're all thinking, duh, that's a given. We all know that we suffer. And that's exactly true. Suffering is a given in this fallen world. We suffer. That's a universal for Christians and non-Christians. Disease, death, dysfunction. Broken relationships, betrayal, and abuse. We suffer from all of that. None are immune from the effects of living in a fallen world under the curse of sin. And as Christians, we know that belonging to Christ does not make us immune from that suffering, does it? In fact, it can make things a little more difficult. Like these Hebrew Christians, we suffer persecution. Not to the degree that they are, but we do suffer. We are mocked. We are maligned. We are marginalized. Sometimes we're excluded from the activity or even the conversation. That should not come as a surprise. For Jesus said in John 15 that the world hates you because it hated me first. We don't quite fit in. Or at least if we're faithful, we're not fitting in. And so to a lesser or greater degree, we suffer for the sake of Christ. Life often hurts for everyone. But as Christians, we experience that same suffering differently. We experience the hurt and the suffering of this present world, this present reality of hurt. We experience that in a greater reality, which is the goodness of God. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The glory of Christ and his gospel conquers every hardship. 
Christ will return. And he will make every wrong right. He will heal every sickness. He will restore perfect harmony between God, his people, and our creation. It will be a return to the garden paradise of Eden, the way that things were meant to be. But as we look towards that future, we remember that Christianity isn't simply a pie-in-the-sky kind of religion that says, don't think about your suffering because someday it's going to get better. The promise of the new creation, that future reality is better than anything we can imagine. And so we should not diminish that in the slightest But Christianity is simply not about the future only. To that day, someday, when Christ returned, the gospel changes our life here and now. Christ died, he was raised, he ascended, he is now enthroned in glory. And that should change how we experience suffering today. God has purpose in our suffering. The non-believer suffers, but unless God is using that to draw them to himself, it has no redemptive purpose, does it? It's just bad. But for the Christian. God has good purposes for us, even in our suffering. Think of Romans 5. We also rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because we know suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope because the Spirit has been poured out upon us. We don't rejoice in the misery, but what God is doing through the difficulties We know that he is working, that he is shaping us and molding us to have the character of Christ. God is perfecting us through suffering, conforming us into Christ's image, who himself had to suffer. Jesus suffered not simply on the cross, but in his whole experience of humanity. He entered our fallen world and was touched by the things that touch us. He embraced our suffering life. Hebrews 2 tells us that the God made the founder of our salvation, meaning Jesus Christ, perfect 
through suffering. But I thought Jesus was already perfect. Jesus was sinless. He was innocent. But to be perfected, to be completed, he had to face temptation and suffering. He had to become like us in every way, yet without sin. He had to become perfect, complete in his role as our high priest. Jesus was tested. He was tempted. He suffered. And so he is qualified to represent us as our covenant head before God. He is qualified to be the second Adam. And where the first Adam failed and he earned death, Jesus, the second Adam, was obedient and merited for us eternal life. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him. He had to learn obedience in his humanity. He had to submit to the Father in everything, just as we do. And so he learned obedience through suffering, and now he gives that obedience to us. We now share in his perfection. Through faith, we are justified. We're given the the righteousness of Christ. We are declared perfect. Not simply innocent, but obedient. And in him, we are sanctified. We are being made perfect, becoming what God in Christ has already declared us to be. And God is using everything, everything in our life to accomplish his good purpose in us, which is conformity to Christ. We all know uh, Romans 8, 28. For we know that For those who love God, all things, not some things, not most things, all things work together for good. doesn't say everything is good. They work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What purpose is that? The very next verse, verse 29, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of, among many brethren. God's good purpose that he's working all things towards is conformity to Christ. 
God is perfecting us, making us complete in Christ in both good and bad circumstances. Suffering is a reality in our present world, and it is unpleasant. But the Christian has a greater reality. God is our kind and gracious Father. We can trust his goodness even in suffering. So we can have a kind of inner sanctified joy in the midst of our tears. In the midst of sadness and suffering, we can rejoice. That was the essence of our last sermon on, in Hebrews. Uh, Pastor Paul preached it. God disciplines us for our good as our Father. Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? And we tend to think of discipline in purely the corrective sense of the word. But discipline is the, the training, the training of God. Training in righteousness. It is correcting sin, but it's also just teaching us and moving us in a particular direction. God is training us in righteousness. And that's why we're told in verse 11 of chapter 12, for the moment all discipline, all training seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Our text this morning only makes sense in the context of God's goodness towards us. Verse 12, therefore, everything I just said about God being a good father who disciplines us and trains us for righteousness, therefore, strengthen the drooping hands and the weak knees. Lift up your head. Lift up your heart. Stand strong. Stop moping. Because God is at work. Don't mope, but look for what God is doing. Look for ways to believe and obey what He says. The natural way, and too often the way that we respond to hardship and suffering, is either uh, self-pity and anger, I don't deserve this, this isn't fair, or we think what is best is perhaps stoicism, which is this defiant resignation. Well. There's nothing I can do about it anyway, so I just got to keep going. There's no joy in that. 
There's no gratitude. We don't see any good purpose when we approach hardship and suffering in that way. We don't see God in the midst of it. Either response is really doubting what God in his word has said. We think he doesn't know what's happening, or he doesn't care, or he's just indifferent. Life stinks, and then you die. (laughs) Those are lies. And whether they come just from your old fallen nature, or whether it's just the world that we live in, or whether it's the devil whispering in your ear, they're a form of unbelief. And if they're a form of unbelief, we can repent and counter it, can't we? We can repent, acknowledge that as unbelief, and then turn from those lies and turn to Christ and to his truth. It's okay to tell God, I'm hurting and I don't understand what you're doing. This makes no sense to me and I'm struggling. That's just being honest with God with your, with your fallen sin nature. Lord, in myself, this is how I'm thinking about it. I don't see how this is for my good, but Lord, help me to believe what you say in spite of my circumstances. I believe, help my unbelief. There have been, uh, and I'm I'm assuming this is true for everyone, so I'll I'll share my own struggles. There have been numbers of times uh, uh, where I'm praying in the morning. Interesting, it doesn't happen when I'm sitting at the dining room table. It's when I'm in the sunroom. We have a little sunroom in the back, so maybe I should avoid that room. But you know what it's like. You're you're thinking about a person that you're struggling with who's mistreating you or some situation that doesn't seem right to you. And you're asking God for a right attitude. You're asking for wisdom. You're asking for patience and direction. And all of a sudden you realize that you're no longer praying to God. You're either talking to that person or that situation. And what you're saying really isn't the kind of language that a Christian should use. It may, I'm not saying it's foul language, but it's a lot of complaining and a lot of anger. And it's you telling them, let me tell you how this is going to go. And if you think I'm fake, and try me. As soon as I recognize that, I stop. I ask God to forgive me. I'm worrying about things that I have no control over. And then I think of Jesus, a passage of Scripture that has helped me ever since we preached through 1 Peter when we were still in the gym during COVID. 
First uh, Peter 2, uh, 23, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. I cannot control circumstances or other people. And let me tell you, I want to. I do control my response. And so I ask for the faith to entrust these things outside my control to God who judges justly. If I'm being mistreated, Lord, that's, that's, that's on them. Help me to pray for them and to pray good into their life. And then I take up my shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of doubt that come at me. I proclaim the truths of the gospel to my own heart recalling the promises of God. And to do that, to use that shield effectively, we have to be filled with his word, don't we? We must develop a Christian understanding of God in our world and ourselves so we think and respond as a Christian as those who know and trust the truth and the goodness of the living God. Now, this doesn't just happen. It takes effort. Somehow we think the, okay, Lord, I'm ready. Just do it. And sometimes God can move in unusual ways in our life and give us victories, but usually uh, victories come are, uh, in a slow, gradual way as we increasingly give ourselves to God. That's how he grows us. There is no quick formula. It's getting up. It's spending time with God. It's praying. It's confessing. It's availing ourselves of those things that he has given us for our good and for our growth. Our text says, verse 12, strengthen the drooping hands and the weak knees. That's, that, those are commands. Those are imperatives. God is telling us to do something. He is addressing our thinking and how we process Difficulties. He then says in verse 14, another command, another imperative, strive for peace with everyone. Pursue holiness. He's addressing our actions. If, if attitudes and actions are going to change, it's not going to be through our own strength. It's not through our own self-discipline. But by the Spirit applying his word to our life so that we're changed from the inside out. It is dependence on the Spirit. Heart change occurs only in relationship with God. 
through what's called the ordinary means of grace. Those things that God has given every Christian in every age, which is the word, prayer, and the local church. That's where the Spirit has promised to work. He may work in our lives in other ways that are unique to us. But he's given all of us as Christians the word, prayer, and the church. And he's given the spirit to us to live inside of us. That takes, it's not, it's not simply reading the words or saying the words or, or coming into this building together. But in those places is where the Spirit is working, that God has promised. And so we don't avail ourselves of them or our attitude is, is haphazard about them. And we wonder why we're not growing in the ways that we wish we could and should. If we neglect any of those, we do so at our own peril. The less we give ourselves to the word, prayer, and the church, the weaker we will be, at least in some way. Now, as a result, our response to suffering will be somewhat sub-Christian, not quite what it should be, less than what God desires for us. Our growth in Christ comes as we daily commune with him and his people through those means that he has given us. Are you seeking to set aside time specifically to spend in his word and prayer? Do you meditate upon his word Are you thinking that your involvement here at Green Tree is is a good thing when I make it, but really not essential to my growth? Commit yourself to be an active member. Attend, give, serve. If you're doing all those things, commit yourself to some form of community, whether it's a growth group, a community fellowship, or whether it's just something independent of those, that maybe a few of you who are friends in the church, in this church, it's great to have friends in other places, but if this is your church, we're responsible for one another, aren't we? And our community should be with one another as God's means, because we have committed ourselves to each other in this local place. Simply read the Bible and pray together. Share life. Which leads us to our final point. Our responsibility to others. Verse 12 says, strengthen the drooping hands. Was that someone applauding for my last point? That's what it sounded like, didn't it? We're almost done. Yay. Bring back Hudson. He was better. (laughs) They said it. I didn't. (laughs) Verse 12. 
strengthen the drooping hands and the weak knees? Is, is he speaking uh, to the individual or the cor- corporate church? Grammatically, it could be either. We all have hands. We all have knees. Is he speaking directly to each person, or is he speaking to the church? In our individualistic Western mentality, we typically assume that he's talking to us personally. But verse 13 is clearly speaking to the church, to the corporate identity. Make straight paths for your feet, your being you plural, the group so that what is lame may not be put out joint, but rather be healed. He's moving from us thinking about our suffering individually to thinking about one another. How do we help one another in this fight to have a right attitude in the midst of a fallen world? And the wonderful thing is, as you are faithful, as you begin to exhibit a Christian response to suffering, trusting God, even in the midst of difficult times, that's powerful. And that speaks of the power of God in your life. And that strengthens other people to do the same. Uh, It was... April, I think, maybe March, 94. I was a young pastor visiting uh, an older man in our church who was dying from cancer. And he was at Shore Memorial. And so I'm going to, you know, encourage him in the faith. And there are tubes coming out of everywhere. It just seemed like a bunch of wires everywhere. And he was obviously in pain. And I was there just a short time. And in that short time, he must have told me six times how good God was. And I'm looking at this man who is about to die. A hard, difficult, suffering death. And he's telling me that God is good. It's almost 30 years later, and I can still hear him. We don't have to be able to say lots of clever things or speak eloquently. Just living a life of faith encourages and helps others because you're being watched. Others see how you live and they're impacted by it. Make straight paths. Correct each other. Not in a spirit of superiority but as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 speaking truth in what? Love. What's our purpose? Verse 13, so what is lame is not put out of joint, but rather be healed. 
we act for the good of others. The idea is that no Christian should be left behind. We don't just think, as Hudson was saying last night, we think not simply about your own interests, but about the interest of others. What's good for other people? Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Don't leave anyone to make it on their own. Be responsible for one another. The Christian life is a community project. Together, we are citizens of the kingdom. Together, we are members of the family of God. United to Christ, we are part of each other forever. You are stuck with me forever. And together, God is making us a dwelling place for God by his spirit. The wonderful thing, all those, all those uh, identifiers, the citizens of the kingdom, members of the family, the dwelling place of God together, are taken from Ephesians 2. They're all corporate identifiers. God isn't speaking to us as individuals, but as a corporate people. Our concern is not just for our own growth and holiness, but for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Our text then ends, and we're almost done, with a warning. Verse 16 and 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. If you remember, chapter 11 of Hebrews is a chapter filled with examples of faith. Esau is sort of an anti-hero of faith. He's an example of a lack of faith, of worldly thinking. Esau was Isaac's eldest son, and so as the eldest, uh, he had the right to the birthright. That was his. And along with the birthright was the inherent covenant promise and the blessing that came with it. Uh, The birthright was a larger inheritance for the elder son and the authority to lead the family. The birthright was primarily material and temporal in nature. The covenantal blessing, which comes later, but inherent as part of birthright, was God's covenant promise to bless Abraham and his descendants. And so the blessing signifies who that covenant promise goes to. The covenant blessing was spiritual. And God promised to to bless not only Abraham's descendants, but through him to bless the nations. And so that is fulfilled in the ultimate son who is Christ. 
as Isaac's son, Esau understood the significance of the birthright and the covenant blessing attached to it. But in Genesis 25, Esau sells it for a bowl of stew. Esau was so consumed with the here and the now, with his physical appetites, that he held God's covenant promise in contempt. He realizes the error of his way, but it was too late. As our text says, he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau, for us, is a picture of one who has all the advantages of belonging to a covenant family, but he doesn't believe. Too often, and if this is you this morning, heed the warning, whether you've been coming for a long time or whether you're a young person who is beginning to make your own decisions. Coming to church is not what makes you a Christian, but rather faith in Christ. And so picture, Esau is a picture of one who has all those advantages, but is taken up with the passions and desires of the world. It's easy when you're young to think, I have plenty of time. Someday, maybe I'll believe then. I had a friend in high school who um, was in youth group with me here. And uh, he had sort of a double life. There was this church life. But during the week, when he could get away with it, he liked to party a little bit. And I remember him telling me, I'm going to live my life the way that I want. And when I'm old, then I'll come to faith. And he claimed Proverbs 22 is a guarantee. Train up your child in the way it will go. When he's old, he won't depart from it as though that's some promise that someday he was going to be saved. Today he is as far away from the Lord as anyone I grew up with. He has no thought of the gospel or eternity. And if he continues the way that that he's presently going, he's going to regret it. He's going to want to repent. But when he comes face to face with God, it's going to be too late. Today is the day of salvation. If you are here and you feel the Spirit working in your heart, whether it's through the sermon, the singing, the testimony, 
that you're heard, Jesus says, come. Come and believe the gospel. Come and trust me. I will forgive your sins and I will bring purpose and meaning to all aspects of your life. Will you pray with me? Our Father, uh, this morning we ask that your spirit would be working in our hearts, that each of us would walk away uh, considering the truth of your word and that your spirit would uh, encourage, convict some area of our life that we need uh, help in. Father, work in us because uh, uh, you have promised to do so. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.